This is Yawa Radio. A warm welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio. Yawa Radio is online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are your well-being and happiness radio station, bringing the feel-good feeling to every single day of the week. Check us out at yawaradio.co.uk. Now sit back and enjoy this podcast from the Yawa Radio team. Welcome to Yawa Radio, your happiness and well-being station. This is Flourish a show dedicated to life's many transitions and the individuals who have and are navigating them. I'm Laura Toop and today I'll be joined by Neil Campbell, a counsellor who specialises in grief and trauma. Join us after the break when we will be talking about the importance of remembering and reminiscing as part of the grieving experience. This, this is, is Yawa Radio. Welcome, Neil. It's lovely to have you here. Nice to be here. So, grief and trauma. How how did you get into this? Particular well, I, I think the, the grief bit came first. The, the okay. trauma came later uh, after a lot of work I've done recently with the NHS and local hospitals. Um, well, I suppose we go back. It's kind of counselling first. I suppose. Mm. Um, but it's, it's mixed in with the grief. Um, when I was young, I was eight years old and my parents um, sent me away to boarding school. I used the word sent me. I always joke and I said, you know, we must have had a breakfast where my parents looked across at the dining, at dining table or breakfast table and said, I don't like the look of him. Uh, <laughs> we'll send him away. So I was sent away to boarding school at the age of eight, which well. gosh, who would want to do that to their child now? So, no, exactly. But my father had a very, very busy um, job uh, with the Constantine Steel Company. He was head of personnel, and quite often he'd be away on business, and sometimes my mother would go with him. So I think in those days, um, I spent a lot of time with babysitters, and, you know, people that I called ants, <laughs> and, then found out that, yeah, and then found out that actually... Auntie Jean was my father's secretary at these concert steelworks. And, but she was a lovely lady, and, and I enjoyed staying uh, with her. Although I have to say is, funny enough, actually, I was reminiscing about this the other night, yeah. telling my son that when I was actually staying with my Auntie Jean, they had an outside toilet. Okay. And it was called an, an, a netty, N-E-T-T-Y. That's the Geordie for a toilet. And... Um, it was like a little uh, wooden shack in your backyard <laughs> and stuff like those days. And you had a paraffin lamp to light, so there was no electricity in there. Yeah. And you wow. had no toilet paper, etc. But what they did is they used to get the evening paper and yeah. cut it into strips, and that would be your toilet paper. <laughs> so it was quite an experience for a young, sort of like <laughs> seven or eight year old going <laughs> an outside netty. Um, or something. So I, I just reminiscing about that the other night. Well, gosh, we are so lucky to have soft toilet paper these yes. days. <laughs> We've definitely gone up in the world, haven't we? We've definitely gone up in the world. Yes, definitely gone up in the world. And <clears throat> so I went away to boarding school, and I, I think my father's job really got too much for him, and he suffered um, major heart attacks and had to change his job. And unfortunately, at that point, 
um, his marriage, my parents' marriage sort of like went really badly, went wrong. Um, I didn't find out until later that they'd had a baby uh, that lived for three months, two years before I was born. Wow. I think he'd had some terrible experiences fighting with the Royal Artillery in North Africa in the Second World War. Maybe that was part of it. But the marriage was, you know, really in trouble and he had a, a severe drink problem. Yeah. So we had a few years of that. And then when I reached, I think I was coming up, I was about 13. Mm. And my father actually had come almost back inside the family again. Okay. And so we lived as one big family. So there was my mother, my father mm. had come back in, was trying to make an effort, getting on top of his drink problem and, and looking for another uh, another job at the time. And also my mother's uh, parents, my maternal grandparents, my nana and gaga, um, were, were so the, all five of us lived together in that house. Um, and then inside a year, I lost both men in my life. I, my grandfather wow. died in November when I was 13. And the yeah. following November, I lost my father. And so I lost the two most important men in my life at that point. Yeah. Now, I didn't realize at the time, but obviously, you know, what should have happened was me being able to grieve, etc. cetera. Mm. But unfortunately, I went straight back to boarding school each time and it was never, ever discussed again. And you just literally got absorbed into the routines of a boarding school, etc. Yeah. And then when I came home, you know, we didn't talk about it. So I think so that was the forerunner. So moving forward a little bit um, into my 30s, and I had a, a problem with my own marriage, and I had developed a drink problem just like my father. Yeah. Um, to the point where I was, you know, I think had I gone on, I would be in my late 30s, had I gone on drinking, I probably would have had an early death, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and for some reason, looking back, uh, and I know I've discussed it inside the family, I have no idea um, what motivated, but I know I woke up one morning yeah. in the spare room with everybody not talking, et cetera. And I think I just said, that's enough. You know, yeah. I've had enough. Now, whether it was, the, whether it was what, what inspired me, what uh, mm. I have no idea. But anyway, I, I went and, and um, sought counselling yeah. in a wonderful organisation in Newcastle called NECA, the Northeast Council of Addiction. Mm. Works with people with alcohol and drug problems and eating disorders. And so I became a client and I was a client there for about a year and a half. Yeah. I did all the things that clients do. Yeah. Um, turned up, occasionally didn't turn up because yeah. either I might have still been drinking or I was too scared to go back in. Yeah. And went back the following week to be absolutely gobsmacked that they weren't being critical of me and they just yeah. accepted me as warm as, as if I'd never gone away, etc. Yeah. So I think looking back as a counselor now, I know all the tricks that clients <laughs> do and don't do it in a helpful There's as well. There's no trick that's going to get past you. <laughs> yeah, and inform that. And, and so really, I, you know, I had, I had over 50 sessions over a year and a half. And I think towards the end of it, I realized not only the whole thing, with the bulk of the counting was around the loss of my, these two men. And by which time I'd also lost, in my 30s, I'd also lost my grandmother in Scotland. Um, and I'd lost a, a favourite uncle up there as well. So I'd had a, quite a series of four or five major losses, and that was within the problems, right at the heart of it. So I got that. And then <clears throat> I suppose it was, it, it, I don't know whether it's arrogance or whether it's, um, it always reminds me um, of, of, of a, a very famous play on television called The Boys from the Black Stuff. Okay. Um, and there's a character called Yozza, 
um, who comes in um, to a builder's yard and he said, I can do that job, gives a job. And <laughs> it was very well known. And I think I was thinking, I was looking at the counter opposite me and said, you know what, I think I can do that job. Yeah. I think I'd like to sit in that seat. Yeah. And so after when I finished my counselling, I talked to them and they said, you know, normally it's a couple of years of sobriety, mm. you need your counsellor training. And so I went off to start my level one, two, three, all the, all the training like that. And what was marvellous is that normally they don't take people on as a counsellor after they've had drink from yeah. two years of sobriety, but they took me for a year after a year and a half. So, Amazing. you know, in a way, it's quite a tribute, I suppose, to what, yeah. the, what I've done. And I worked with people with, mainly with people with serious drink problems, but also eating disorders and drug problems. And I would say 90% of the people that I worked with then, there was unaddressed losses at the heart of their issue as we peel back the layers. Um, and so that's how I got to be a counsellor. And of course, I started counselling and I started to work with people that were very sick to me yeah. and had all of these unaddressed bereavements and other losses as well, right at the heart of it. Um, and then at that point, I was working at the University of Northumbria and I was working um, in the registrar's department and doing various things. But I was also doing some volunteer counselling at the time as well inside Northumbria. Mm. And suddenly I got a phone call. I have no idea to this day yeah. how they got my name. But somebody rang me up and said, look, we're wanting to relaunch Cruise Bereavement Care in Gates in Newcastle. Yeah. We had a branch many years ago, but it dissolved, lack of volunteers. We're wanting to relaunch. This will be about 20 plus years ago. And I said, okay, yeah, I'd like to be part of it. And of course, I, be, I was one of the original team of six and uh, we became the management committee. Yeah. And I stupidly stuck my hand up and I said, what <laughs> would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to do the training and train yeah. like that. And it was one of those where suddenly everybody said, oh, great, thank you, yeah. sold. And yeah. then afterwards you went home that night and you think, what have I slept myself in for? <laughs> and, and so, yeah, it's quite designing course. So I became the um, director of counselling and training for Cruise Breathing Care for about 10 years. Wow. Um, I chaired the branch for three years. And then I did some work with Cruise Breathing Care regionally across the North Region, doing training in other branches, um, mainly around things like working with anticipatory grief, helping to start bereavement support groups, stuff yeah. like that. And that's, that's where it is. And I stayed with Cruz for 10 years. And in those days, we were very much using the medical models or the typical models and theories at the time from people like William Worden and, and, mm. and uh, Murray Parks and things like that. And I, th I think I was getting an, more and more uneasy about using them. They're good for a backdrop information, mm. but not really relevant. The more I worked with bereaved clients, the more... I understood the uniqueness of, mm. of the grief experience and that what, you know, this idea of getting through and getting over and yeah. moving on became more and more uncomfortable. And yeah. I then had a, a client and a counselling relationship that became almost like an epiphany. Um, yeah. I was working with a retired ward sister at our local hospital because mm. by that time I had a small counselling business set up. I'd gone full-time as a counsellor mm. and I'd been lucky enough to get some work up at the local Gateshead NHS Trust at the hospital and I was working with a lady who was a retired ward sister, had three children and the youngest of her children was 17 at the time Yeah, and she was dying of leukemia and she was, it was wow. terminal. And I worked with her from January through till July 
when unfortunately the daughter died. And then after a two-month period, she came back and I worked with her for another six months after that. And what was made it even more poignant and perhaps harder at times for me mm. was that her daughter was 17 and my daughter was 17 at the time. Wow. Um, and so there I was working with this lady um, whose daughter was dying and my daughter was going off to Malawi and Zambia on one of those school challenger trips. And yeah. the, the contrast couldn't be more stark um, at, at the time. And I know that <laughs> I think my supervisor would always expected every, every month I went in that yeah. that would be the first case that I would present, et cetera. She did, um, we did explore things like transference and counter-transference. I mean, basically, I wasn't just a counsellor. Yeah. I was a, I was a fellow parent, yeah. and therefore, the grace of God, could I have gone? You know. Yeah. Well, now precisely, precisely. Um, and really, I was working with somebody that it was basically. It started off obviously anticipating grief, but after yeah. time, you're dealing with just sheer naked grief. Yeah. Absolutely raw and everything, and there's absolutely nothing that I could do except yeah. be there for her be there for her and help her to explore this grief and, and to talk about it in whatever way she wanted. And I think and that's I, so important, isn't it? And it, we were using a couple of words that people don't, the powerlessness and helplessness that hmm. you in grief, I mean, you touched on it there, and how people just don't get that, you know? No, I, I think they don't. I, I remember I, I went... I went to supervision once and I had an excellent supervisor. She was really good, although she was a very senior person in, in BACP, the professional bodies in charge of a lot of councils. So I was one of those where I can remember thinking, I'm going into that one, and I um, I remember I should really be tugging my forelock to my yes. supervisor because she was very, she, she was excellent, but she was something that you were quite, you know, she's your supervisor and she is a very, very powerful woman. But I remember going into supervision on a couple of times and, and and saying to my supervisor, I don't know whether I'm doing any good in this. Yeah. You know, I, I really got to the point where I was absolutely almost panic-stricken and I wasn't able to do anything. This powerlessness, mm. this helplessness, at first, I was absolutely scared by it, mm. panicked by it. And I, I said to the, my supervisor, I said, I don't know if I'm doing any good or anything like this. And my supervisor is in a typically matter-of-fact way and said, well, I think that needs to be discussed with your client, Neil, doesn't mm. it? And I thought, pardon? <laughs> to say, what? <laughs> no, I actually said, I think that's something that at the start of the next session you need to explore. So after discussing it, the following session, I actually said to my client, I said, look, before we start, I said, I need to just to talk to you about something, et cetera. And I explained, look, I said, I don't know if I'm doing you any good in this. Is this any good? I feel quite helpless in this, it's, uh, you know, I want to do more or whatever and she just looked at me and she said Neil just you being there and allowing me each week to be who I need to be in here is exactly what I want from you yeah. and in that moment in that session yeah. and by God I thought about it later on and yeah. I certainly made it full use of my own personal learning journal at the time I understood about the importance of working with powerlessness and helplessness yeah. in those particularly counselling situations with people, with bereaved people, with grief, that at the end of the day, 
that it's about being there and the richness of your presence rather than trying to solve a problem which can't be solved. Yeah, and I think that that is such a good point because it's so often, you know, people don't know how to deal with that. They feel they've got to do something, um, you know, to help the person who's grieving, not just actually sit, yeah. as you say, to acknowledge their yeah. powerlessness and helplessness and just yeah. to be present. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, absolutely. And, um, and, and, I, and I say to and I say to placement students now who, uh, who may I may work with them or, or supervisees, and I said, the trick is not to be frightened of that powerless and helplessness. Yeah. It's, it's about acknowledging and embracing. It's not comfortable. No. You know, it's not comfortable at all, and it's going to take chunks out of you, which is why we we do need supervision and mm. all sorts of other things that we need so we can look after ourselves. But it's 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 you're going to work with that, particularly with bereavement and grief mm -hmm. and, 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 and trauma as well. And and there is a strong link anyway yeah. between grief and trauma mm. and, and PTSD yeah, they're yeah. linked together. Um, and, and so it's about the risks. And I've always said, and uh, you know, then I, I suppose I put on my website. Um, the more you learn, the more you know. Yeah. The more you know, mm. the more uh, you can empathize. The yeah. more you can empathize, the richer your presence. Yeah. And the whole point is about, you know, richness. And and uh, and I would say to anybody that wants to work and specialize, and and it's an interesting topic these days. What yeah. is a specialist and who is a specialist? <laughs> etc. Yeah. I'm not going to get drawn into that because I have some very strong views, yeah. as people know on that. But I think if you are going to specialize. And your presence is going to be rich. You have to do a lot of research work. You have to do a lot of reading and, and training around this. It is such a big and complex area. Oh, without a doubt, without <laughs> a doubt. And I think, you know, going back to, you know, the, the client that you, you kind of raised this with and just said, to like, I feel so powerless and helpless. And actually, you know, you just being present was absolutely what she needed in that moment. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it it, it goes back to the, the importance, and you've used lots of different stories with it in the conversation so far, and it's this idea of remembering and reminiscing. Mm -hmm. And it's almost that, that however long that counselling session is or that, that moment of time that you're with that person and allowing them to explore and acknowledge their grief, that in itself is remembering and reminiscing about absolutely absolutely i mean you know i i think if i look back to when i saw say with cruise and where i am now i i have moved almost like from the left left hand over to the right hand to speak yeah. um in as much as that you know I, I i get quite annoyed by society i do think society these days is actually impatient with and unkind towards the breed. Yeah. I think, you know, as a society, we're a very instant, immediate society. Mm. We're solution-focused, absorbed by solution-focused. Yeah. If there's a problem, we need a solution to it. Unfortunately, grief is a problem that can't be solved. Absolutely. You know, so <laughs> the idea about this. And so society is pretty unkind. Yeah. And so it comes out in the society's agenda with the things they say is... Um, you will get over it, time yeah. will heal, moving yes. on, etc. And, and you know, I've got to be careful what I say here, but I say that is not very helpful no. to the individual um, bereaved people who are grieving. So at the other end, I believe that 
first of all, is that grief is lifelong. Yeah. That we don't get over it. But that will not stop the vast majority of us going on to lead meaningful lives. Yeah. Meaningful lives, fulfilling lives, but still missing that person for the rest of our lives. Um, and And I always remember a quote. I can't remember which book it was from, but somebody was interviewing a widow. And she said, the sadness never really goes away. It's mm. just the in-between times get a bit longer each year. Yeah. And I kind of like the idea. That, that quote, I thought, was, was quite good. So we've moved there. So I, when I've looked at this, and over the years I've developed an approach that says, actually, we don't let go. Why should we have to let go? Mm. No. That, you know, part of the grieving experience mm. is actually to move a bit closer to the, the people that we've lost the deceased. Yeah. So it's about... I call it reframing our relationship yeah. with the deceased. In other words, yes, they're dead and they're not coming back one either, but they still play a part in our lives. You know, what they what they said to us, how they inspired us, what they wanted for us, memories, little things like that. And I think rather than letting go, actually we grow closer. Yeah. And I and, and I've come to, you know, the conclusion that one of the most important parts of the grief experience is the two R's, remembering and reminiscing. And I think, you know, remembering and reminiscing is talking about. Yeah. And that that can start in counselling. I mean, every single bereaved client that I work with, I always ask them if they want to bring in a picture mm. of the deceased, yeah. um, then I, it would be a privilege to, to have that come in because I do like the idea of almost the three of us being in the room. Yeah. No, we are going to talk about sense. the deceased, so it's kind of nice to get that. I, I had a lady who lost a daughter, and we worked for 20 sessions, mm. and she brought in 20 different photographs in 20 different frames. Wow. Um, and uh, she said it's one of the highlights of the counselling was <laughs> each week to choose which, which picture you could bring in. But that's just so lovely because, again, it's that bringing that person to life that person yeah, has you know absolutely that person is being acknowledged that person you know has yeah you know i call it footprints on on our hearts you know they, they yeah. have created yeah. footprints on our hearts yeah. and they can't just stop you know yeah well, <laughs> um, absolutely not and in counseling as well as the picture i will in actual fact say to them i said tell me about him tell me about him mm. what was she like what was he like what did they do you know, and, and kind of thing. I mean, one of the things, you know, I, I've helped set up um, a community counselling service charity here in mm. Gateshead on the other side of the river from Newcastle. Um, my ex-father-in-law, Matt Irishman, who's still active in the community at the age of 89, and is one of those that if he asks you to do something, you don't refuse. <laughs> so it's one of those. So we've set this up, and I think one of the things that we want to do for the future, it's a project for next year, is a remembering and reminiscing project, particularly with older people. And we're probably going to start work with age concern. And that's basically that we are going to set up small chats, possibly like we're doing now, yeah. with people uh, who want to talk about their lost loved ones. And we are going to record um, me chatting to them you know, um, and record them on a DVD. And I'll be asking to them all sorts of things about their life with them. Can they remember their first date? Can they remember their first holiday? That kind of thing. And we are going to then put them onto two DVDs. Yeah. And they will get 
a DVD themselves and the other DVDs for their family, for oh, the storytelling. So it, it's something we hope to get off the ground yeah. next year as part of the importance of, of remembering and reminiscing. So we start in the council room. But I think in general, I mean, I'm a huge fan of things like memory boxes. Yeah. As you know, memory boxes, memory quilts. And memory boxes, you know, we tend to think of it as a box, and that is obviously how the main thing is. But a memory box could be an album of photographs. Mm. In a way, that's a memory box. Yeah. No, well, absolutely. It's, it's in a different, a different form. Take it, transported yeah. into that place, isn't it? You know, you know a, a scrapbook. Yeah. Um, a, a kind of thing. And a memory quilt, which is something that I've tried to start up here, which is basically, you know, if you can imagine uh, something the size of a, a quilt to go on a baby's oh. cot. And then on one side uh, are a couple of pockets that you can put all sorts of keepsakes in. And then there's some ornamental cord, etc., where you can tie little bits of jewellery and there's patches you can put on. Mm. And then it folds up. It can hang on a wall or it can oh. just fold over and put in a drawer. It's a kind of alternative to, to that. And this is, you know, as I said, over the years, I've realised the importance of remembering and reminiscing, mm. partly as a grief experience, but partly also for a, the lost art of storytelling. Um, yeah. You know, we've talked about this before. I've talked about mm. this on networking as well, is that I think as a society and families, we've lost the art of storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. We don't tell stories about the previous generations and holidays and things that people yeah. did and didn't do and favourite dogs and what they did, yeah. etc. Because people just don't have the patience no. to sit down and, and listen anymore. And, and, and so the idea of, of reminiscing is, A, it's an integral part of the grieving experience for me, mm. but it also helps the storytelling for the family to pass yeah. down different generations. Yeah. Because if we're not careful, there is so much rich mm. information and rich uh, accounts of experiences that we're going to lose. Yeah, no, and absolutely. Or, you know, and I think so often people believe that, you know, a nice little TikTok video or an Instagram live is enough. Yeah. Actually, oh. it's, it's, the, it's the, to use your word, it's the richness of that story, the yeah. way it's told by somebody who was mm -hmm. there but can't be translated in, you know, to mm -hmm. the, you know, live. It's that person actually, you know, giving richness to the story, yeah. to the interpretation, to the sharing of that that really brings the person to life. Yeah. And I, I think with memory boxes, I mean, I know that, you know, uh, for instance, you know, I, as you know, I do a lot of work at the moment um, in maternity departments and working with people who've had miscarriages and, and stillbirths. And there are organisations that do a kind of pre-stored pre memory box, etc. Yeah. For them. And they're, they're very nice. And, and I think, you know, it has a lot of meaning and stuff like that. But I do think the art of a memory box is about starting from scratch yeah. with a memory box and des designing or making your own memory box. And, and you know, yeah. sometimes the actual box itself, it doesn't have to be a box. It could be, you know, it could be somebody's knitting basket or it could be yeah. somebody's briefcase yeah. or it could be somebody's shopping thing. That's something that they used all the time. No, and it's absolutely. so resonant with them that we can use them. And, and we can do the same for bereaved children, young people, mm. you know, getting the old fashioned Clark shoe box, yeah. but then, you know, wrapping it in, you know, really, really nice kind of relevant kind of wrapping paper, gift paper, yeah. etc. And then you put into the box 
whatever has meaning. Yeah. No, whatever has meaning for it as well. You know, I, I was showing my mother's, I, I mean, I, I've got still got a memory box from my mother's, her old sewing box. It's one yeah. of those little cases that in the 1950s you took with you, yeah. uh, your handbag, a little case with all your makeup on, etc., and then your, your bigger case. Well, she had this and it was her sewing box. And inside there um, are things, I mean, for instance, I've got her driver's license still in there. Yeah. I've got uh, when she was the chair of the um, Women's, D Women's Institute and the WVRVS wow. uh, when she was at concert and the badges that, that go in there. And then she's got the metal tags when she was um, a member of Gosforth Racecourse and she used to go um, with my with my nana because they both loved horse racing yeah. and stuff like that. So all the metal badges. And this is these are things that probably don't have any meaning to anybody else if you're picking them out. Um, but they certainly have meaning for me. Yeah. And I have I have told both my children about the box. We've gone through the box, my yeah. mother's. Uh, and I've taken out the stuff, told about each one. So hopefully they know um, what they do with it after that. It's up to them, but they know the story as well. Uh, and, I think, and I think that's that it I think that's the whole thing, isn't it? And you know, you talked about people aren't patient society isn't patient and I think you know I, I sit in as uh, as you know a lot of widow and widower groups and you know so often you know really all they want is a space for their voice to be heard to, yeah. to, to talk about you know suddenly you know then the loved one or is not mm -hmm. talked about anymore mm -hmm. um as if you know it's going to cause any greater pain or whatever and, and literally they're just almost kind of feel like they've been cut off yeah and and I it's so important that that space is given, you know, yes, counselling is, is a critical, plays a critical role in that, but society too, family plays a critical role in yeah. having, offering that space. Um, absolutely. And, and I, I just wonder whether our society will ever change because, you know, I, I believe now, I think if you look at it, society's attitude towards mm. bereavement and grief it's it's you know okay somebody you you friend colleague or somebody they lose somebody close to them and of course we go out we get flowers we send them flowers we send yeah. them a card we send phone calls etc we yeah. attend the funeral and i suppose people are in constant touch for about three months yeah three or four months and then it's somebody like an invisible guillotine comes yeah. in kind of said okay Society is basically saying, that's your lot. You've yeah. had your time. Now we want you back to what we think is normal. Otherwise, I never use the word normal in grief. There's nothing right. normal or abnormal. It's just grief. Yeah. But it's almost like society wants them back, doesn't yeah. want them. And a year down the line, yeah. oh, my gosh, if, if people are still distressed and grieving, etc., we don't know what to do with them. Yeah. Um, no. you know, I, I, I had um, lunch with an old friend from... Well, she's not old, but she's a friend. friend. You've oh, known God. her for a long time. <laughs> I've got to be careful about this. Yeah. And uh, she'd actually rung me up and said, uh, uh, do you fancy having lunch sometime? Because yeah. I need to talk to you about something. She sounded quite distressed. And and so we had lunch. And, and what she told me was is that she'd lost a mother. Um, I didn't know. Uh, but she'd lost a mother 14 months as before. I hadn't spoken to her for ages. And I suppose... She remembered that I was a counsellor, etc., mm. from those days. 
But she'd lost her mother 13 or 14 months prior to that. And her mother was more than just a mother. She was best friend. Yeah. They would go shopping every Saturday in town mm. uh, together. And then they would finish off at the big departmental store in Newcastle, Phoenix for afternoon tea. And yeah. so they were really close mother and daughter and best friends. And so she lost her. So here she is 14, 15 months after the death of her mother. And she's still struggling, still struggling with the grief. Wow. And still, whenever there was something that might trigger off like that, mm. prone to sort of some tears, get emotional, and the same in the workplace. Mm. So she's shopping mm. in the middle of Newcastle and she's coming back because the uh, quite a few of the offices in the centre for the Northumbria is actually in the city itself. So she's heading back to her office mm. and she sees two people that are not just colleagues, but she's socialised outside with them and mm. she's been to conferences. And she sees them walking towards her and she can see that they've seen her and mm. she knows that they've seen her, etc. Yeah. And just before they come even closer, they cross the road to the other side. And when she looks across, mm. almost to try and catch their eye, it's almost like they're making a strong effort to almost talk to each other yeah. without being seen. It was it almost, by the sound of it, looks theatrical. And I, I said to her, look, I, I do not believe for a minute that they've fallen out with you. That I actually think that because they know that you're still struggling mm. with the loss of your mother, they are probably panic-stricken that if they yeah. stopped and said, how are you? How mm. are you doing? And yeah. you actually say anything other than I'm okay or fine. Mm. If you actually say, God, I'm struggling, I'm awful, I'm a horrendous time, etc." I don't think they would know what to do or say. Yeah. I think it's more about them being scared of what to do, etc. And so instead of doing something, instead of being honest and said, look, I'm embarrassed, I don't know what to say, I do, but I'm here, can I be of some help, etc. Then people do nothing. They cross yeah. the road, they walk away, etc. Um, and I think that's our problem. Uh, and so then society brings in its own agenda, its language. Mm. You move on, yeah. let go, you'll get cool. over it. That's got nothing to do with the breed. That's no. society agenda and yeah. making it feel uncomfortable with, with uh, uh, absolutely you know but what's interesting is that you know say will the society ever change but what's interesting and people know that i'm a huge fan of the show but a bit of an oasis in this desert mm -hmm. so to speak is the repair shop yeah and it's been going now for about four years and i've watched every episode of it i would say that when it's on the rest of the family go out of the house. Even, <laughs> even the dog goes back into a basket in the kitchen when she realises that. One. Because I think she realises that it's a poor repair shop if I've not been in tears for at least two out of the four um, projects they're doing as well. Um, but it is, it's a wonderful programme in two aspects. I mean, there's one level where you're watching something that's really quite entertaining and you're watching a team of craftspeople who are at the top of their game. You know, there's a wonderful wood restorer, a young lad called Will. There's Steve who does all the watches and there's his sister Susie that does all the leather and saddles. The two mad ladies that do all the teddy yeah. bears, etc. Dominic outside does all metal work. And they're terrific. So, and, and they take something that literally looks like it's falling apart. And the next thing is they've done work on it and it looks like it's brand new. How they do it, it's magic. Yeah. yeah. So you're looking at that aspect. But the important bit for me, it's a very, very 
big tie-in with remembering reminiscing. Yeah. People are bringing in lots and lots of items, which to a lot of people they would look at and think, bloody hell, that's just an uh, old teddy bear or yeah. that's just an old little clockwork toy or uh, in one aspect that's a pair of shoddy old spurs that mm. were worn by somebody in World War One. Yeah. But it's the story behind it. Yeah. And not only is it the story behind it, but it is the memories for that person bringing it in, the tie-in. And they are respecting that, bringing them in, and then get, and then we're getting the story. So, for instance, I was watching last night, and there was a lady brought in a clockwork toy. It looked like a bit like a Snoopy type of dog, um, but it had an, uh, it had an apron, yeah. And then there was a, there seemed to be like a barbecue or an oven, and in one hand it had a frying pan, and the other a bottle of ketchup. And this lady would be in her forties, and this was. Absolutely, she was obsessed with this toy along with her younger brother. Yeah. And it was absolutely, the clothes had disintegrated. It wasn't working at all. Mm. Next thing is the, the um, bear ladies have made it all new outfit mm. and Steve had restored the mechanism, etc. Yeah. And when you switched it on, it actually flipped the pan and the actual pancake jumped out of the pan and turned over. It's very mm. clever. Amazing. And then you looked at this lady's face and you could just see from the face that she was now, she was going back in years. Yeah. The memories were flooding in. And I think Steve, who was, had obviously had worked his magic on, on the mechanism side, just said, does this remind you of your brother? Because her brother died when he was only 26. Wow. And so she's sitting there and she said, I can remember we were watching, I would be here and he was younger than me. And he would be literally standing on tiptoe with his face just above the table, mm. two hands like that, watching it. And she said, I'm just immediately transported back to that. And I think it is, you know, it, we look at the programme on one level as being entertained. But for me, I think it is a, a very, very important and influential programme for people like myself who work with the breed and for society as a whole. Yeah. It is it is telling us quite clearly this program about the importance of remembering and reminiscing and the importance of memories and the importance of storytelling. No, you know, absolutely. And, yeah. absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think we have to allow a space as society for others to to have their voices heard. Yes. Um, yeah. It's so so utterly critical because when they're not, we are <clears throat> we're not improving the status quo almost. I mean, we're, we're keeping people isolated, really. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it, some people say, you know, there will be people who say, oh, that's not healthy. I, I don't believe that because, as I've said, the people that have died, you know, my mum and dad, um, my dad died, obviously, when I was 14. So that's 55 years ago, 69. My mother died... Um, 19 years ago, my son's 19. My mother died um, four days before my son was born. She was in hospital for about four weeks, four or five weeks. And ironically, my partner was two weeks overdue. So he was overdue. And my mother, each day, because Teresa was going in and she would, my mother would pat her tummy and said, when is that bastard baby going to arrive? Because she was des desperate to see the baby. And sadly, um, for all of us in particular, and for Aiden, she missed it by four days, um, you, you know, fr from that point of view. Um, so I've lost 
both of them 19 years ago, but they're still part of my life. They're still part of my life. They're still part of the family. I still talk to my daughter and we reminisce. I still tell stories. Mm. You know, funny enough, actually, I was, you know, sitting down, we were talking about embarrassing things that we did. (laughs) And um, I was telling them the story of many years ago, my mother's favorite cousin lived in Shipley, in Yorkshire. Mm. And she had a son that was about my age. And we, you know, we met each other in the holidays. We got on really quite well. And we were seeing somebody off on holiday at uh, the Leeds and Bradford airport. Yeah. And so we went in and my mother and her cousin Kitty uh, were getting all the stuff from the cafe. So they got two big trays, teapots, mm. juice, and God knows what else, etc. And of course, being sort of like typical, 16, seven-year-old boys, etc. We were not helping carrying the trays. <laughs> we, were, we were just sitting back and letting them do things well. And then somehow my mother and Kitty actually turned around and bumped into each other and dropped the two trays on the floor. So we're talking about a busy cafeteria in an airport in East Bradford and these trays, everything, cups, milk, scones, God knows what else, all going all over the place. Mm. What did the brave two young men do? Myself and my cousin Stephen, we actually fled the room and said, we urgently need to go to the gents. In other words, how embarrassing it was <laughs> to have two mothers who couldn't even carry their bloody trays to that. So rather than help, we actually fled the scene. You legged it out, 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 we, out the door. We legged it in case we were drawn into an embarrassing thing. And, and so my son turned around and said, and you criticise me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. So, you know, sometimes, you know, when we, you know, remembering and reminiscing is not all about remembering great times and yeah. exciting times and lovely times. It's it's also remembering about frustrating times and yeah. and things that they did that sent us around the twist and stuff like that and yeah. embarrassing moments like that. But it's, it's all part of the rich tapestry of your relationship with that individual. Yeah. No, and absolutely. Absolutely. So it is It is for me. It's a crucial part, whether it starts in the counselling room yeah. with asking them to say about it or encouraging people to start a memory box, a memory quilt. But um, I will always say to people, it is important that you talk about them, particularly in those early days, the remembering. Yes. And, and there are many ways that we can, we can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I was, I, you know, I, you know, I, I'm passionate about allowing people to have their their voices heard. So, I just want to say thank you so much for for your sharing your story, your thoughts, your work um, about this today. I really, really appreciate it. It's always It's always good to talk to you. It's, it's nice to see you again as well. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah. And I think the thing is, is uh, one thing that I'm actually, I suppose, relieved at more than anything, is that, you know, I'm 69 now. I've been a counsellor for 30 years. I'm into mm-hmm. my 30th year, 25, 26 of those specialise in that one. And oddly enough, I'm still as passionate now um, as I as I was 30 years ago. And, and funny enough, after this interview, I'm going to start chatting to a new group of counselling placement students and I shall be wow. banging the drum about the importance of powerlessness and helplessness and the richness of their presence and they may very well have um, their eyes glazing over <laughs> or, or they well, may be, be learning from 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 the best well i hope so i hope so <laughs> but it's been I mean, great lovely to talk you.
Yeah, likewise. You're listening to Yawa Radio, and we love to bring you details of the inspirational book of the week. This week's inspirational book is from Ben Fogel and Marina Fogel. The book is Up, My Life's Journey to the Top of Everest. In April 2018, season adventurer Ben Fogel and Olympic cyclist, gold medalist Victoria Pendleton, along with mountaineer Kenton Koo, took on the most exhausting challenge yet – climbing Everest for the British Red Cross to highlight the environmental challenges faced by mountainous regions. It would be harrowing and exhilarating in equal measures as they walked the fine line between life and death 8,000 metres above sea level. This is truly an inspirational book. Ben Fogel shares his fears, his anxieties, his determination, his persistence as he climbed Everest. And he leaves you with this thought. You don't need to climb Everest. You just need to climb your very own Everest. So this week's inspirational book of the week is Up, My Life's Journey to the Top of Everest, Ben and Marina Fogel. This, this is, is Yawa, Yawa Radio. Radio. Hi, this is Steve. Join me every day of the week from 7 through till 10 for Yawa Breakfast right here on Yawa Radio. Probably the best way to start your day. Make a day. Join me every day, 7 till 10, Yawa Breakfast right here on Yawa Radio. This This is is Yawa Yawa Radio. Radio. Thank you everyone for joining us here on Yawa Radio today. This is your global happiness and well-being station, airing inspiring stories, top tips and brilliant music, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm Laura Toop and this is Flourish. Until next time, everyone, lots of love and take good care of yourselves. Bye-bye for now. A big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at yawaradio.co.uk And if you'd like to join us as a guest on Yawa Radio or as a guest on the Yawa Radio podcast we would love to hear from you. Simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk Once again, a big thank you for taking the time out to listen. This is the Yawa Radio podcast copyright applies with inspirational guests from around the world inspirational quotes the inspirational book of the week the meditation hour the quiet zone and feel good music yawa radio is about well-being happiness and finding the beauty within enjoy be beautiful be happy be inspired This is Yawa Radio.